The psalm this morning is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your peace, let your priest be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we are, over the course of this Pentecost season, working our way from the very beginning of the story of the Bible to the very end of the story of the Bible, and, and reading it as one complete story, not as an isolated series of stories or an isolated series of theological messages or inspirational thoughts, but as one entire complete story. In fact, the story, the capital S story, the story that sits on top of all of our stories and demands that our story become a part of its story if our stories are going to make sense of reality. We've been uh, started off a long time ago in Genesis, and we've made our way to David. Just to sum up where we are, we, I, we, we met King David last week, and we're going to talk about the covenant that God made with David this week. To sum up where we've been, this is one way, not the only way, but this is one way of looking at the story of the Bible. To sum up is this. God creates a beautiful universe that's designed to reflect his glory and to be a venue in which all created beings give him praise. He puts his God reflectors, his image bearers, Adam and Eve, into this universe. They rebel against him and introduce death and destruction into the whole story. This is why things fall apart. This is why your car broke down this week. This is why we're all slowly but surely dying. Is because we've rebelled against God, and that's the price to pay. God does not leave it at that bad note, though, but he decides, I'm going to do whatever I can to redeem it. He tells Eve, I'm going to use one of your children, one of your offspring, to reverse the curse, to fix what you guys screwed up. It's a lot of people. All the, uh, the, all the children of Eve, that's basically he's saying, I'm going to use a human being to fix what human beings screwed up. Later on in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, we meet Abraham, and God says to Abraham, out of all the human race, I'm choosing you, Abram. I'm going to bless the whole world to you. Remember, bless is reverse of the curse. I'm going to bring salvation to the whole world 
through you and your offspring. And in you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, will be saved, will be rescued. So it's somebody out of all the human beings in the world, it's somebody from Abraham's family. Now today, in 2 Samuel 7, it's gonna get narrowed down even more because we see in 2 Samuel 7 that it's one of David's, specifically David's family, who's going to be the offspring who brings salvation to the world. And that's where we're at today. Now 2 Samuel 7 is the key text for the Davidic covenant because that's actually the recording of where God makes the covenant with David. But we've been looking at Psalms all throughout. So let's go to Psalm 132. This is in your bulletin. And let's look at this and think, I'm gonna point out two things to you real quickly. What does the covenant with David do in Psalm 132? And then I'll close with a couple of final reflections and then we'll have communion together. So Psalm 132, I'm gonna point this out to you real quick. If you're the kind of people who take notes, I know some of you are. You can make little markings in your bulletin if you want. This is another one of those Psalms. There's several of these. We've looked at some already this summer that function as kind of sandwiches where you have a theme at the beginning and at the end, and in the middle you have the meat of the sandwich. Another theme, which is related to the bread part of the, the theme. So in Psalm 132, it's verses one through five are about the temple. God coming back and living in his house in the middle of his people. Verses 13 through 18, also about the temple. That's the other slice of bread. God coming and living with his people. But in the middle, the meat section of the sandwich is God made a sure and everlasting, I will never, ever go back on this promise ever, 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 covenant with David, the apple of his eye, his chosen one, his, remember last week, his Messiah. He is the one who the oil has been poured on his head. He has been Messiah. It is his job to defend and rescue God's people. And of course, like we looked at last week, David does a great job of this, but he also does a horrible job of this. David's a good Messiah, but he's also a very bad Messiah. The people of Israel, and, and of course, the, one of the worst things about David is he dies. He doesn't last forever. The people of Israel, for thousands of years after that, been looking for a Messiah, somebody to come and be what David was. Okay, so let's look at the, um, let's look at the meat part of the sandwich first, verses 6 through 12. This is the part about the eternal kingship of David, the promise that one of David's offspring will sit on the throne forever. Look at verse 10. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So that's just the word Messiah. Our, our English translators in the ESV made it anointed one, but it's really just the word Messiah. So this is about David. David is going to have a future Messiah. Don't neglect him, God the Father. Be faithful to this one. Because, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. This, of course, for those of you who are familiar with the story of the Bible, this will not be a newsflash to you. This, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus, David's son. So what we read about in the um, gospel reading, which I know it's weird to read an Advent reading in the middle of the summer. It's okay, though. It's in the Bible. It works. Uh, this one who's going to come, verse 31, uh, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David, which as we saw last week, is a throne that will someday rule over the whole world. Every single nation in the entire world, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group will be a member of the kingdom of the king of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, this is a key part of Christianity. So there's a couple different ways that you can look at Christianity. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at who is God and 
what is he about? There's two key ways on offer. I'm going to give you kind of the, the common uh, way in the West, in America, of, of thinking of God, and then I'll, I'll give you the, the Christian way. The first way, a lot of you know this, is what we call it deism. It's a view of God where God, he's up there, he's big, he's powerful, Everyone's, but largely disinterested in what goes on here, largely ignoring what happens with me and you. I mean, every once in a while, like the Wizard of Oz, like he pulls a rope and a big lightning storm happens, or he presses a button and you die, but, but by and large, he doesn't really get involved with us too much. That's the kind of view of God that's on offer. Actually, that's the kind of view of God that's the default mode. It's the one that even devout Christians, those of us who have been in the church a long time, will default to this mode. Like, where is God at? What is he doing? Well, that's a view of God. That's, he's up there, and he's kind of either ignoring us or minding his own business, but he doesn't really get involved here. Okay, let me give you the biblical view, which is the view of Psalm 132, and what uh, Luke is talking about in Luke chapter one. God is the king. Jesus is the king. He rules over every single thing, everything. He's completely in charge of the entire universe. What does this mean? What this means is this, is that your frustration with your work situation, do you have the right job? Should you get a different job? Your boss is lousy. Your almost chronic loneliness that some of you experience the chronic physical pain that a lot of you experience, the anxiety, the worries that many of us struggle with nonstop. Anxieties about money, anxieties about our own mortality, about impending death, anxieties about being betrayed by friends close to us because we've been, we've been betrayed by people close to us before. All of those things are completely within the control of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you can say, one temptation would be to get up here as a Christian and say, He's not really in charge of those things. He allows them maybe, but he's not really in charge of them. That's a deist view of God. The biblical view of God is that Jesus is in control of everything. Now, I know this raises tons of questions about why would a God who is so good be in charge of everything and such bad things happen to me? And this is not the, the sermon's not the place for that. Unfortunately, I hate to raise a question like that and then just kind of blow by it. Except to say this, if Jesus is king of the universe, it means that you can have hope and comfort even if you don't understand it, your sufferings. I, I can't explain your sufferings to you because I don't understand my own sufferings. But if Jesus is truly the king, then we can say he knows everything, he's all powerful, nobody loves me as much as Jesus does. I can let him have all those frustrations and pains and abandonments and anxieties. I can let him have those things. There was a book written by 30 years ago by a guy named J.L. Mackey. It's called The Miracle of Theism. He's a British philosopher. He's, uh, he's an atheist, so the, the, the title's misleading if you think he's gonna present the belief in God as a wonder. He's basically saying, if you believe in God, it's like a superstition. It's, it's miraculous. He doesn't believe in the miraculous. But his main argument in this book is it's impossible to believe in a God in a world where there is pointless suffering. And that's a direct quote from his book. That's how he frames it. Pointless suffering. You look around and you see the suffering in your own life. And what is it doing? Teaching you a lesson? Probably not. How often do we learn lessons from our sufferings? I guess some, that's what we say to ourselves. I just need to learn the lesson here. Sometimes there is no lesson to learn in suffering. Sometimes it feels like it's random. But here's where, that, here's where that falls apart. 
just because J.L. Mackey or because I don't understand the reasons behind my suffering doesn't mean that they don't have reasons. And part of believing that Jesus is the king of the universe is to say, I don't get it, God, but you're in charge. Now, I'm gonna break this out. This is my once a year chance to break out this illustration to you. Take your kids. I'll use my daughter, Kate. Kate was very, very squirrely when she was little. Now she's very mature, but she's always getting in trouble. Like we had like a biannual trip to the emergency room every year. So she is climbing on one of those portable space heaters when she's two years old and busts her lip open. I have to take her to the emergency room and the doctor at the emergency room says, I really need to give her stitches. If this was like a cut, you know, on her, her arm or something, we could just let it go and it wouldn't be a problem if there's a scar, but it might scar up. So I had to hold Kate down while the doctor took a needle and put it through her lip. She was not happy at all. And one of the worst things about that was that she was looking at me and I could see on her face that she had been betrayed. That her dad, who loves her and is supposed to protect her, was holding her down so a stranger could run this needle through her lip. From a two-year-old's perspective, that's completely pointless suffering. What she doesn't know, though, is that she, when she's 16 years old, she doesn't want a scar on her lip. She didn't know that when she was two. We, before the face of God, are frequently like two-year-olds, demanding reasons and not getting them, saying, well, I don't know if we can believe in a God who allows pointless suffering. Well, I'm two years old. That's all I am. I don't understand anything about my own life. How can I understand the workings of the almighty, all-loving God of the universe who does what he wants for my benefit? And part of believing that David, this covenant with David, has given us a King Jesus who never dies, who's always right, and who always loves, is saying, whatever goes on in my life, God, it is yours. You're in charge of it? You can go and complain to the manager. And he's not gonna say, that's not me. I'm just hanging out up here in heaven. Mind a moment, but he is going to say, yes, I'm in charge of it, but I love you and I've got this. Just trust me. Davidic covenant means this, is that Jesus is the eternal king. Here's the second thing. And this is interesting, I think. This is the bread part of the sandwich. It has a lot to do with God coming to live with his people. I will not give sleep, verse four, David says, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That's what 2 Samuel 7 kicked it off, right? is David says, I'm gonna build a house for God. And God says, no, you're not. I'm gonna build you a house instead. Nevertheless, though, God does say, I will let your offspring build me a house and his kingdom will be eternal. And my house that I live in then will be eternal. So verses one through five, he, he, he talks about this. Verse 13, same thing. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation and her saints, her saints will shout for joy. David has this desire to build, God's, uh, to build a house for God to live in. He doesn't get to, he, he does prepare for it though. He gathers all the, uh, all, all the materials for it. Solomon, his son actually builds the house and then in 2 Samuel, God comes and lives in the house. Smoke, fire, the whole works. God's presence is in the house, but it fails not because of God, but because God's people continue to rebel. Now, I'm gonna, this is a hint of what we're gonna talk about next week. We're gonna talk about exile and restoration next week. God's people rebel against him, and what God does is abandon his temple. This is clear all throughout the prophets. 
God has chosen to live in his temple, but when God's people abandon him, God flees the temple, and in 586 BC, the Babylonians blow the temple up. And the answer the prophets have for the question, how could, how could these pagans, how could Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians blow up the house of the creator God? How could they be so strong? The answer the prophets consistently give is, God didn't live there anymore. He left. He pulled up stakes because you rebelled against him. He will not be your totem. He will not be your vending machine. He will not sit there in the middle of you and be there at your beck and call whenever you feel like it. He has left. I'll give you, there's a ton of, ton of examples from, and I'll, we'll do more next week. Lamentations 2. Lamentations is a book that Jeremiah wrote. It's this extended, like, deep, deep, profound grief at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. This is one of the themes that goes through there is in Lamentations 2, verse 7. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. This is why the temple got destroyed. It's because God left. He abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They've raised a shout, and the house of the Lord is on the day of an appointed festival. What do I mean God is gone? How can God be gone? He's omnipresent. Yet, yes, God's omnipresent, but there are special places where he chooses to put his special presence. And in the Old Testament, that place was his temple, and now it's gone. But more on this next week again. There's a long extended theme running throughout the prophets, which goes like this. God will someday come home. Lift up your eyes and see it. Behold your watchmen shout out because they see the return of the Lord to Zion. He's coming back home. That's Isaiah 52. He's coming back home someday. Now, fast forward to the gospel reading and you can flip over there with me. There's this really interesting section. My community group on Wednesday night, uh, Meg brought this up. It's very, very interesting uh, here. Uh, or maybe it was Angel. I don't know. Somebody uh, brought it up. Uh, Gabriel appears to Mary in verse uh, 26. Gabriel says to her in verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Okay, that seems innocuous enough, right? Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But then it says, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why would Mary be, you know, she's an angel, that's disturbing enough, but what actually has got her stumped is what the angel said. Now, wait a minute. You said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with me. What does that mean? Well, I say that every Sunday to you guys. The Lord be with you, and you respond also with you. What's so weird about that? Here's what's weird. When Mary is a teenage girl, remember where they're at. God has abandoned the sanctuary, and they're longing for his return, but he has not yet come home. And now all of a sudden, here's this angel who says, actually, Mary, the Lord is with you. The reason why, well, this will take a few weeks to get to this. The reason why when I say the Lord be with you and you say and also with you and we all just act like it's sort of normal is because since Jesus has been here, it is normal. The Lord is always with you. Mary did not experience that until Gabriel comes and says, Mary, the Lord is with you. Now, what, is, what, what does Gabriel mean? The Lord is with you. It's, it's quite literal. The Lord is actually with you. The Lord is actually Mary in you. The Lord is in your belly right now. The God of the universe who created all things. The God of the universe who upholds all things. The God of the universe who at that moment was causing Mary's heart to beat was living inside of her belly. God had come back home and was now living with his people. And what's the payout? The payout is this. And, and, and Luke realizes this, or Luke's recording it. It's this conversation that Gabriel and Mary have. Gabriel says, here's what's at stake. There's promises that God made to David. 
that David's son would sit on the throne forever. There's also other promises from the Old Testament, from Psalm 132, that someday God would come back home. And both of these promises in Psalm 132, the bread of the sandwich that God would come back home and the meat of the sandwich that David would sit on the throne forever are actually the same promise. When David's son arises, arrives, it will actually be God's son too. This comes out really great in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. That's another way of saying the son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So who's his father? Is he the son of the most high or is he the son of David? And the answer, of course, is he's both. He's taken both themes in Psalm 132 and he's pulled them together and said, this is it. God is now dwelling with us. Now, a couple things, um, a couple things final reflections and we'll be done. First of all, assurance. What's the whole point of God becoming king and living with his people? What, what, why, did, what, what, why is God so determined to, to make promises to David that I will come back and that you will sit on my throne forever? What's the whole point? Go back to the psalm if you would, if you don't mind doing this real quick. Verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I've desired it. I will abundantly, this is verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout with joy. So almost a repeat of verse nine. Go back up and look at verse nine. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. So what's the priest's job? The priest's job is to stand there in the presence of God in the temple on behalf of the people and offer sacrifice for sins so the people can be forgiven. The people who are with them in both verse nine and in um, uh, verse uh, 16 rejoice. Why does Jesus come? He comes, for, he comes to forgive sins and he comes to bring joy, to forgive sins and to bring joy. And of course, a lot of you know this, but it's totally worth saying it out loud over and over again. Jesus comes to make Psalm 132 a reality. God comes to live in the temple. He comes to be the priest in the temple. He comes to be the king in the temple. He also comes to be the sacrifice in the temple. He comes to be the thing that connects us to God the Father. He comes to give up his own life, to shed his own blood, so that we can be connected to Jesus. He comes to be the one of whom it can truly be said by John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God, he is the high priest, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's this king priest who does it. Now, I didn't mention this last week because it was just too much, you know, so too much helmet noise sometimes in these sermons. But do you guys remember in Psalm 110 where David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, we just sang about it in the hymn we just sang, this Messiah who's above David even. There's, there's some king that's even above David. If you go down a few verses, Yahweh says to David's Messiah, which is Jesus, says, I will make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Kingdom and priesthood. High king and high priest coming together perfectly in Jesus so that he can forgive all sins and rule and reign over all things. And these two streams, kingdom and temple, Ruling and redemption come together in Jesus of Nazareth in Psalm 132. So, assurance. Last thing, and then we'll be done. Hope and comfort. Think about how long this took to come to fruition. Psalm 132, when was it written? Not, not really sure, but sometime probably 10th century BC. David reigned from about 1000 BC and he reigned for uh, the next half of the century, and then Solomon for a bit after that. God makes promises to David saying, I will make your kingdom last forever. He says that, 40 years later, kingdom's gone. Solomon reigns, his son Rehoboam blows it. 586 BC, there's no king of Judah. 
and there never is a king of Judah ever again. What happened to those promises? It's waiting and waiting. It looks like God has failed. He makes a promise, and then there's no king of Judah. How long has Mary been waiting? Well, she's a young girl, but how long have Mary's people been waiting? Almost a 1,000 years. God makes a promise. It takes a 1,000 years to pay it out. 2,000 years later, you and I are still asking the Holy Spirit to help us believe it. Think about what, what a slow burn the promises of God are. Take comfort in this. Think about how much time, some, some of us, like I said, have been s- sitting in these frustrations. So some of you, your whole life, your whole, you can't remember a time when you have not grappled with anxiety. You, some of you can't remember a time anymore when you didn't have physical pain. Some of you, the, 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 the life that you had with this person that you loved, it feels forever ago since they've betrayed you. And it feels like it's just never gonna end. How long, oh Lord? That's a totally biblical prayer to pray. And sometimes the answer is a thousand years. But when it gets paid out, it's beautiful and it's good. And it will be worth the wait. I don't don't even, I'm actually just saying words right now. There are things that I struggle with that I think, I don't know if anything could be worth this pain and this struggle. And yet it is. It's worth the wait. Her people will shout for joy. Think about how long God has invested in this. This isn't just like, well, I'll try this out and let's see what happens. We're talking millennia that God has invested in this. Think about how much love he has for you that he would make you the goal of this massive world-redeeming project. Think about how much cost he has sunk into this project. God himself has shed his own blood. God himself has considered it worthwhile to die for us. Is he going to abandon you now? If he's the eternal king, no, never. He will never abandon you. Amen.